This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is your host, Bob Wintermute, and you're listening to the New Books in Military History podcast for the New Books Network. Naval history has enjoyed something of a boom in the last few years. Between studies focusing on the age of sail and those dedicated to the experiences of the 20th and 21st centuries. One of the new voices working in this area is our guest, Commander Benjamin B.J. Armstrong, Assistant Professor of War Studies and Naval History at the United States Naval Academy, and author of Small Boats and Daring Men, Maritime Raiding, Irregular Warfare, and the Early American Navy, published by the University of Oklahoma Press in 2019. Dr. Armstrong has been a guest before in the New Books Network. I interviewed him some time ago about his two books, 21st Century Mahan and 21st Century Sims, two studies of visionaries shaping American naval policy and tactics in the Progressive Era and the First World War, those persons being Alfred Thayer Mahan and William Soudan Sims. As we begin our discussion of his current work today, I should note that the views expressed in this interview are entirely those of Dr. Armstrong, and in no way do they reflect the policies or views of the Department of Defense or the United States Navy. BJ, welcome back to New Books in Military History. Bob, it is great to be here with you. Thank you so much for having me aboard. It's good to hear from you again, BJ. And I want to say up front, I did enjoy the book immensely. And, you know, I got to say, you know, the shift from the age of steel in your earlier work to the age of sail is not an insignificant change. What prompted you to make this transition? And in turn, what inspired you to tackle this particular topic? It's a, it's a good starting question because, you know, the, the motivations for why scholars dive into the topics that they dive into is, is always a fascinating thing for me as well. Honestly, this, this book is the, is the outcome of what began as my doctoral research. Uh, I, I read for my PhD at King's College London in war studies with Dr. Andrew Lambert. And I got some very sage advice from another naval officer who had, who had also pursued a PhD, uh, then Captain Jerry Hendricks, when he was on, on active duty. He was the director of history and heritage command before he retired. And, and Jerry told me when I started out on my path towards a doctorate, he gave me advice. He said, you really ought to pick a topic where everybody's dead and all of their relatives and friends are dead. 
as a active duty serving naval officer, staying away from any active controversies is always a good thing. And I kind of took Captain Hendricks's advice to the extreme. So I went all the way back to the founding era of the United States Navy and Marine Corps for my research. You know, the work on Sims and the work on Mahan were derived from me trying to examine my own sense of my profession and, and what it meant to be a naval professional. Frankly, you know, Alfred Thayer Mahan is the starting point for many naval discussions. And so it kind of makes sense that I was using him as a sounding board for my own attempts to figure out professionalism. And then Sims was kind of an outgrowth for that. He was that next generation who came after Mahan as a naval innovator and a leader. But this, this work is kind of deeper. Those were both edited volumes. Those were both books that collected the works of those prior officers, collected their own writing. And really, I introduced and contextualized their writing. But the majority of those books is actually the essays and articles written by those men themselves. And this work is, is more, more of a real scholarly endeavor on my part, real research. And besides the era, why go back to the age of sail? Why the topic is also interesting. It, frankly, it's, it's again, it's an effort for me to explain my own experiences as a naval officer to myself. I'm a helicopter pilot by trade, search and rescue and special warfare flying. I've deployed all over the world with, with naval fleets. You know, 2003, the, the beginning of the Iraq war, the run to Baghdad, as it was called, we were there. But I've also deployed to the Gulf of Aden for counter-piracy operations, the Horn of Africa for counter-terror, the Caribbean for counter-smuggling and law enforcement operations, deployed to the coast of Libya for the, the Libyan civil war. And so I've had a, a lot of experiences as a naval officer that are not classical kind of naval battle experiences. They're not big blue water fleets engaging with each other. Most of my flying has been done with the Marines. And it's mostly been what we in, in today's parlance call irregular operations. And so what I was looking for as I headed into the archives and headed into my study in the age of sail was to try and explain to myself where this came from, where these kinds of operations that were not the classical naval battles that we tend to read about in our naval history. Is there a history there? Is there Are there roots to that endeavor in our American naval past? And that's really what drove me towards the topic that, that the book is about. In your introduction, you note that, you know, it was no less a figure than President Theodore Roosevelt, who misappropriated the legacy of the traditionally vaunted founder of the United States Navy, that being John Paul Jones. I got to ask, how so? And, you know, if that's the case, you know, what should the focus on Jones be? So John Paul Jones is a, is a fascinating figure when it comes to our American naval heritage. And, and I say heritage instead of history because largely Jones is remembered through that heritage lens. So his body is interred in the crypt below the chapel, not far from where I'm sitting here in Annapolis. Uh, and he has been held up as the father of the American Navy. And I use the word American Navy instead of United States Navy because John Paul Jones never served in the United States Navy. He was a continental naval officer. But at the end of the American Revolution, John Paul Jones returned to Europe and he ended up serving with the French. He ended up serving as an admiral in the Russian Navy of Catherine the Great. Uh, he never came back to the United States. And 
he never served in in the actual United States Navy that was founded at the end of the uh, the 1790s. So as the father of the American Navy, it's largely a, a label brought by heritage. And Teddy Roosevelt is in large measure responsible for that heritage. Teddy Roosevelt, when he became president, obviously a navalist, obviously interested in increasing American power and prestige on the world stage, aspired to build not just a global Navy, the United States Navy was already globally deployed, but a powerful Navy, a battle fleet Navy, along the lines of what was advocated by Alfred Thayer Mahan, and in competition, direct competition, with the other major naval powers of the world, specifically Great Britain. And in this desire to raise the stature of the United States in the U.S. Navy, Teddy Roosevelt was a, you know, he was the man of the bully pulpit. He was a great communicator. And he knew that he needed a hero. Being a naval historian himself, pretty accomplished. His undergraduate thesis from Harvard became the book on the the Naval War of of 1812 that's still, frankly, a very good read about the War of 1812 today. Uh, And he had lectured at the Naval War College. So he was a naval historian himself. He knew he needed a hero. And at just about the right moment, John Paul Jones's remains had been discovered in a pauper's grave in Paris. And he had his hero. Now, John Paul Jones has an important part of his biography, his history, that is blue water surface engagements, as we call them today. Right, ships fighting ships. Famously, the the duel between Bonhomme Richard and HMS Serapis, but also during his command of of the sloop of war Ranger against the HMS Drake, Jones is one of the few figures from the American Revolution who, as a captain, actually fought his ship against a British warship and won, and he did it more than once. So he was a kind of a classical blue water captain a battle captain. And that's what Teddy Roosevelt latched onto. So at the reinterment of John Paul Jones's remains, when it, they were carried back across the Atlantic to be buried here in Annapolis, Teddy Roosevelt uses John Paul Jones to make a speech about why the United States needs a big battle fleet, a Navy built around battleships and a battle line that can stand up against any of the other navies of the world. And he uses the example of John Paul Jones and his his success on the blue water as kind of his hallmark, his calling card for that argument. And it's a factually correct argument, right? Like John Paul Jones did do those things. My contention is it's insufficient. It's incomplete in understanding John Paul Jones's past. John Paul Jones did those things, but John Paul Jones also did many other types of naval operations. He conducted a lot of commerce raiding. In fact, that's where he first became famous was in his cruises aboard Providence and Ranger when he raided the Grand Banks and the Canadian fishing waters and captured many, many prizes and and made a good deal of money for himself and his crews. Um, So he was a commerce raider, but he was also an irregular warfare operator, I guess I would call him. He was a raider and his landing at Whitehaven, which is kind of his... Home. It's all. It's where he grew up. It's where he learned to sail on that border between England and Scotland, uh, on the Irish Sea. He attacked his hometown, in essence, and tried to burn it to the ground and burn all the ships in it. And so that story, as well as other planned raids that he never actually conducted, but that he did plan against British targets all over the world, 
suggests that John Paul Jones saw naval warfare as something more than just the blue water battle, more than just a fight between ships or a fight between fleets, that there were other parts of what it meant to be a Navy and what successful naval operations looked like. And it's that other side of John Paul Jones that that Teddy Roosevelt cast aside because it didn't help his argument. And which largely the heritage of John Paul Jones, as we remember him today, forgets as well. Well, let's stay with this this focus on you know the late 19th century, early 20th century perceptions of what defines naval operations and then naval warfare. And you note that it's this emphasis at this time on traditional naval engagement, rather, you know, the blue water operations you've been describing. What you also call in the book gear discard. I have to ask if this was also an emphasis at the time that was directly reflective of the growing impact of Mahanian thought on naval policy and strategy. That's that's largely right. You know, Mahan has an, a, an enormous influence on how American naval officers and American leaders thought about the type of navy that was needed which means that the kinds of ships, quite frankly, right? What are you going to pay for and build? Because that's when you come down to brass tacks, that's what it's all about, right? It's about Congress appropriating money from the taxpayers to build things. We call them capital ships because they are an enormous capital investment. And so, yeah, the ideas of Mahan are a large part of this. The Traditionally, naval strategy has been taught as two sides of a coin. Right? It's a dual-natured endeavor. There's the guerre de course, which is the war on commerce, commerce raiding or attacking another nation's ability to interact and conduct trade and obtain supplies via the sea, or guerre de scadre, as you said, which is, which is the war of the battle fleets, right? the engagement of, of main battle fleets. And largely American naval policy through most of the 19th century had focused on guerre de course. We see it in the American Revolution. We see it in the War of 1812. We even see it in the Mexican War and the American Civil War, where the U.S. Navy is kind of the dominant navy in those wars. But the primary operation conducted by the U.S. Navy in those wars is the blockading, which is largely a guerre de course operation. There's also a battle fleet element of it. You try and bottle up the enemy's fleet in port, keep them from coming out, that sort of thing. Um, But it's in both of those cases, the Mexican War and the Civil War, it was largely an effort to choke off the enemy force, uh, the enemy nation, really, and, and slow down its economy to the point that it can't fight anymore. And so this economic tie of naval warfare is a fundamental part of the U.S. Navy's approach in the 19th century. And it's Mahan in in 1890, with the influence of sea power upon history, as well as his largely forgotten Harper's article, um, America Looking Outward, where he makes the argument that the United States, to become a, a true great power at the end of the 19th century, dawn of the 20th, is going to need to have a battle fleet. And it's going to be able to need to conduct not just Gerda Course, but also Gerda Scadra, and be able to fight an enemy's fleet on on the world's oceans in order to keep an enemy's fleet from coming to the United States and imposing its will on us. 
So this is Mahan's fundamental idea. Why is this Mahan's idea? It's because it's what the United States doesn't and can't do. The U.S. Navy of the 1880s and 1890s was starting to build battleships. It was starting to think about what it would mean to be a globally powerful Navy, but it wasn't really doing it yet. It had no experience with it. Its officers were just beginning to learn how to command fleets and conduct fleet-wide operations. This is part of the founding of the Naval War College in in the mid-1880s. So the United States Navy is figuring all these things out. So by the time you get to the dawn of the 20th century and the presidency of Teddy Roosevelt after the War of 1898, when Mahan's ideas seem to play out, when the success of the U.S. Navy over the Spanish fleets appears decisive in that war, you see Teddy Roosevelt adopting these Mahanian ideas. Now, we say Mahanian, and and when we say it today in the 21st century, we largely are using a caricature of Mahan's ideas. When we say Mahanian today, we tend to mean only this exclusive focus on battle fleets fighting battle fleets, which is not all that Mahan wrote about. Mahan wrote about commerce warfare. Mahan wrote about blockades. Mahan wrote about the peacetime interaction between economics, diplomacy, and naval power. Mahan wrote about all kinds of different things associated with great power dynamics and great power competition that we largely forget in the caricature. The caricature is just about battleships fighting battleships. But that is what Teddy Roosevelt was building a fleet to be able to do. That was the focus of what Roosevelt was thinking in the early 20th century. Well, let's turn back to some of the more technical aspects of uh, small craft operations in this period in the age of sail. And I'd like to ask, what is the difference between littoral operations, you know, inshore engagements between naval forces and the small craft actions you describe. They're not the same thing, you know, though there is a tendency to combine the two by some historians. This largely is connected with a question of definitions. And it's one of the things I admit to in my introduction to small boats and daring men, that to a certain extent, I'm being anachronistic. Because I'm applying vocabulary or labels, doctrinal labels that we use in the 21st century to the late 18th and early 19th century. Naval officers of that era, David Porter, Francis Gregory, they would not have called what they did irregular operations. Um, That's a a phrase we use in, in late 20th, early 21st century naval doctrine. Why do I use those labels? Well, I am, I'm an active duty naval officer, obviously, but I also think that as naval historians, as historians generally, we need to be able to communicate with wider audiences. And in the case of a naval historian, you need to be able to communicate with naval professionals. And if we ignore the vocabulary that those naval professionals use and the vocabulary with which they understand what it is that they do and, and how conflict at sea works then we're going to have a harder time communicating with them and having them understand why the history we study and the things we write about may be valuable for them to think about or learn about or ask questions about. And so I think using even these labels that seem a little bit anachronistic, using them to help communicate the ideas can be an incredibly valuable thing. So part of what I've done in terms of what I call irregular operations is separate them from littoral ship versus ship combat. 
The labels that I've used here with maritime rating and in irregular operations, I intend them to, to suggest naval combat or naval operations that don't fulfill that kind of classical idea of a, of a ship fighting a ship. So I've had some folks ask me, why not more discussion of the Jeffersonian gunboat Navy, of the presidency of Thomas Jefferson, or the gunboat operations of Commodore Barney on the Chesapeake in the War of 1812? And my answer to that is, by my definition, those are not really irregular operations. They're asymmetric, right? You have a large vessel. In the case of Barney, you have British frigates fighting a swarming group of gunboats, right? That's an asymmetric engagement. But I don't think it's irregular because what are they doing? They're still boats shooting at each other, trying to sink each other at its most basic level. And so that's, that's regular naval combat. That is the traditional definition of naval combat, ships fighting ships. And so I've largely avoided those kinds of engagements in my study. I've looked for the other things, the things that are irregular, uh, to try and study in the book. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. You know, I can't help but think that the keystone of American naval design during this period, you know, the, the 30 to 44 gun frigate, was crafted specifically with this idea of hard-hitting, fast rating in mind. So, I mean, I guess the question is, did the technology shape the doctrine? Or was the frigate built to meet a pre-established approach to irregular warfare? I think that largely the, the, the early American frigate, particularly the, the Joshua Humphreys-designed super frigates, as we call them, the 44s, they're a compromise ship. They're a very good compromise ship. But, and frankly, all ships in one way or another are designed compromises, right? But the Humphreys frigates are built big and heavy. They're larger and heavier than, than almost any frigate on the planet at the, at the end of the 18th century. I mean, most British frigates are 36-gun affairs rather than 44. They carry smaller guns. Um, than the American frigates tended to in terms of, of weight of the, the weapons themselves. French frigates tend to be more along the sides of the British, 36 to 38 guns, 32 in some cases. The Americans are building large frigates, very powerful ships. Uh, so much so that in the War of 1812, during the frigate duels, that the Americans win three frigate duels, uh, three victories and sloops of war in the in opening months of the war, the British begin to excuse the fact that they're losing naval battles at sea by the fact that, well, really, the Americans are using battleships to fight frigates. They're calling them frigates, but they're much bigger than frigates. And that's why we as the British keep losing. They, they create this narrative of excuses. And to a, to a certain element, they're right. They're far. When, when you have a ship like Guerriere going up against Constitution, if you take the skill of the captains out of it, if you take the skill of the crews out of it, you just look at the hardware itself. The Americans far overmatch the British uh, in a battle like that. So the, the frigates of that era 
in my estimation, are not actually about irregular operations. The, the frigates of that era are more focused on that, that blue water engagement. They are raiders in a commerce sense, as traditionally frigates were, but they're also built to overmatch pretty much anything on the planet, except for a ship of the line, except for the battleship of that era. And if they came across a ship of the line, they were designed to be as fast as possible. So frankly, they could run away. Right? John Paul Jones famously said, give me a fast ship for I intend to go into harm's way. He wanted a fast ship because he wanted to be able to run away if he found something more powerful than him. And that was, that was some of the idea behind the Humphreys frigates. These are actually large and powerful battle fleet style ships. They're not used by the Americans in a battle fleet sense. But they would have fit in very comfortably with the British or French battle line of that era. And, and largely when it comes to the irregular operations that are documented in the, in the chapters of my book, in many ways, the frigates become liabilities. They have a deep draft. Their keel is low in the water and they can't go into the shallows very easily. They're very large and they're not as maneuverable as some of the smaller vessels that you find in the littorals of the world the kinds of vessels that smugglers and pirates might use. They are also, frankly, easier to spot and avoid on the world's oceans because they are so much bigger. Now, the upside to a frigate of the size that the Americans used was you can carry a lot of stuff. And we see that in uh, the later chapters of the book, particularly the operations around Indonesia and Sumatra, when the USS Columbia and the, the USS uh, Potomac, they didn't call them USS in those days. They were, they were just the frigates. The USS label doesn't come to the end of the 19th century. But these ships are large and on global deployments, but they can carry hundreds of sailors and Marines, small boats, and plenty of ammunition and food so that you can get to the islands of what we call Indonesia today. And you can conduct irregular operations from the base, the sea base, uh, that that frigate provides. So they are, the frigates are useful, but they are, they're useful as bases of operations as opposed to the operators themselves. Well, you know, another aspect of this warfare that you're describing is a greater integration between sailors and Marines and operations. And again, it comes down to which came first. I mean, is this by design or was this simply a matter of contingency? The, the relationship between the Navy and Marine Corps in the 19th century was a fundamentally different relationship than the, the one we have today. The one we have today sees largely two separate services that work together sometimes. In the 19th century, it was one naval service. Sailors and Marines saw themselves as one thing. Marines deployed on board ships. They were in wardrooms. They were on the mess decks. Uh, they served in gun crews occasionally. They fought the same battles as the sailors did. Marine Corps officers in the 19th century saw themselves as naval officers. They did not see themselves as something separate and apart from the Navy. And so the, the kind of integration that you're talking about was, it was by design. It was how things worked from the very founding of the United States Navy and Marine Corps. And, and I would argue going back to the Continental Navy and the Continental Marine Corps as well. They worked hand in hand, always, constantly. Almost every ship had Marines on board. 
And the idea of them being separate services conducting kind of their own policy, their own strategies, their own doctrines, that never crossed anybody's mind in the 19th century, really. It's not till, not until towards the end of the 19th century that you start to see, and frankly, you start to see the Navy suggesting to the Marine Corps that it spread its wings a little bit. Or some naval thinkers, I guess is the better way to put it, not formally the Navy, Big Blue. But this relationship between the Navy and Marine Corps as an integrated force, as a single naval force, is the norm of the 19th century. And it's the norm of all of the operations conducted uh, that I document in the chapters of the book. And it's interesting, one of the great, honestly, most rewarding parts of this book's reception has been the way our modern Marine Corps officers, in many cases, have come to really enjoy the book and find it immensely valuable. Our modern Marine Corps is going under something of an identity shift. The new commandant of the Marine Corps has put out planning guidance and a force design memo that suggests uh, the Marine Corps returning to the sea from its many, many years spent in deserts in the mountains of Afghanistan and reintegrating with the Navy and reintegrating with maritime operations and maritime raiding. And largely, much of what Commandant Berger's uh, writings have talked about for us in the 21st century, the roots of it are the raiding and irregular operations of the Age of Sail era. Um, So this kind of integration, this kind of cooperation, and and I hate using the word cooperation, frankly, because that, that indicates two different things, right? You have to have two different entities in order for them to cooperate. In the early 19th century, they were not two different entities. It was one entity. The landings in Sumatra had about a company's worth of Marines, maybe less, one platoon. Largely, it was sailors that conducted the landing operations. The amphibious raid, when you count the number of people on the Americans on the beach, it was largely sailors in both cases, both in 1832 and 1838. But they were led by the Marines. They were taught by the Marines. They were prepared by the Marines. And the Marines were at the front of those landing operations and those raids. So you see a a fundamentally different relationship, I think, between the Navy and Marine Corps in that era. I remember from my own coursework earlier in my life how, you know, the Quasi-War, the Barbary Wars, even the War of 1812, you know, their naval aspects of those conflicts were waged from the decks of the large frigates, which we've already talked about. You know, however that instead of looking towards these deep water actions or even the Great Lake actions in the War of 1812, we should look towards the smaller irregular operation, not only as the norm, but the ideal response for a young American Navy at this time. Can you elaborate on that? I would hesitate to say ideal response. I think what I'm suggesting is that it takes more than just commerce rating and more than just fleet battle to be an effective naval force, both in peacetime and in wartime. And that's why I, I borrow this idea from the naval, noted naval historian Jim Bradford of Gerda Razia. Right? So Jim Bradford wrote an article in the Northern Mariner almost two decades ago now, probably, in which he looked at John Paul Jones. And specifically, he looked at Jones's correspondence, his writings, as opposed to his kind of operational past. And Bradford suggested that in addition to the classical ideas of Gerda Course and Gerda Scadra, 
that Jones was suggesting a third way of naval warfare. And Bradford himself labels this guerre de razia or war by raiding. He borrows the label from French colonial officers, you know, in Algeria, fighting counterinsurgencies, that sort of thing. And so Bradford suggests that maybe John Paul Jones was thinking that there's a third element that has to be integrated into a proper kind of naval strategy or naval policy. And that would be the guerre de razia or the war by raiding. What I suggest, based on the, the examples uh, from the book, like you said, the Quasi-War, the Barbary War, the War of 1812, I think what I'd like to suggest is broadening the scope of what we understand is necessary parts of naval operations and naval planning, in, in those cases in wartime, that it's more than just the fleet battles or the squadron battles. But it's not that we should exclude the squadron battles either. Right, like the 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 Battle of Lake Erie is an, a very important part of the War of eighteen twelve. Oliver Hazard Perry's victory there is an important part of the war, and significant for American and British naval history. As is McDonough on Lake Champlain, as are the frigate duels in the Atlantic. I don't want to discount those. I don't want to dismiss those. They're important, and the Commerce War is also important. The privateers of the War of 1812 have a significant impact on British economics, on motivation to keep fighting, and on how London thought about the war. And so those are important elements of, of any naval conflict. What I'm suggesting is that there's this, there's this other part, there's this third thing. And it's the small unit actions, the raids, the amphibious attacks, these are also things that place pressure on an enemy. They are also things that drive an enemy towards considering negotiated settlements or concluding a conflict. While they are often themselves not directly decisive, they won't end a war on their own, they are significantly and strategically important in how many of these conflicts develop. And so that's what I'm suggesting here is not that not that the Gerdorazia should replace our understanding of how American naval officers and the American naval policies and strategies are affected, but that it, it needs to be a part of how we think about it. I was surprised to learn that piracy was still an issue in the Caribbean in the early antebellum years, you know, between 1819 and 1832. And as I look at those efforts, that chapter, as well as your chapters on the East India Squadron, that was active in the 1830s in and around Indonesia and Sumatra. I, I need to ask first, you know, what, what distinguished these pirates that you're historically addressing from those that have perhaps become over-sensationalized and stereotyped in, in recent years? But then connected to that, what was the difference in the American or United States Navy's anti-piracy efforts from earlier British and Spanish anti-piracy operations in the same areas? Or was there a shared approach? Did, did the American Navy pick up from where the British and Spanish had left off a century before? The, the piracy that occurs in the Caribbean in the late 18-teens and 1820s is definitely, it's fascinating. And, and you're right, you know, there's a chapter on it in the book and frankly, there's there's much more work to be done. This is one of those topics that that I think is one that I'm going to pursue even further than just a chapter, because there's so much more to be said about 
the experience of the U.S. Navy in those waters in that period for about a decade, a little bit less. To distinguish the piracy that happens in the Caribbean in the 1820s from what we largely call the golden age of piracy in the early, late 17th, early 18th century, it's different motivators. It's different reasons for the maritime crime, and it's different maritime actors, I think, in the 1820s. The experience in the 1820s is largely wrapped up in the Spanish-American revolutions. The, the Spanish colonies of America in that era are largely in open revolt. What we know of today is Colombia and Venezuela and Panama, Mexico, Central America, most of South America, except for Brazil, are in some form of revolution against the Spanish Empire. And a lot of the piracy that takes place is wrapped up in that political dynamic. Most of these revolutionary governments do not have the money or the wherewithal to build navies. And so they look north to another country that had recently thrown off an imperial power, the United States of America, to see what the United States had done. And they see that privateering was a significant part of the American Revolution and then again a significant part of the War of 1812. And so Privateering becomes largely the naval policy that they adopt. The problem for the Spanish-American uh, republics or, or revolutionary governments is they don't have the infrastructure that really supports proper privateering. Now, I say proper privateering, I kind of mean the, the legalistic definition, right? To be a legal privateer, you have to have a commission or a license from your government saying that you represent them, that you're a privateer. You can only capture enemy flagged ships, enemy vessels. And after you've captured them, you have to bring them to an admiralty court and have it adjudicated. You have to have the court rule that, yes, this is a legitimate prize and you can keep the money from selling the ship and its goods or, or whatever. So the Spanish-American governments don't have admiralty courts. They largely consider themselves at war with basically everybody. So capturing a quote-unquote enemy vessel becomes a broadly defined thing. And so much of what the privateers start doing, once they've gained these commissions from the Spanish-American republics, what they start doing is actually pirating. They actually attack whatever they can find. They just keep the stuff. They don't take it to a prize court to adjudicate it. They don't follow any of the kind of legal procedures required of proper privateering. And so what you end up with is this swarm of pirates who are in the Caribbean, but they all have paper. They all have licenses. They all have these commissions. So it becomes a very complicated environment for naval officers to try and enforce some form of maritime security. You know, there are years in, in that era when over 400 ships per year, American flag vessels, are pirated in the Caribbean. Imagine if in a year, 400 American vessels had been pirated off the coast of Somalia, right? It would have been significant. And in the 1820s, when American Atlantic trade is growing post-war of 1812 and, and beginning to compete with the other maritime powers of the world... That's a significant political and economic activity besides just a maritime security activity, right? Like the pirating of that many vessels. So the U.S. Navy is sent to, to try and enforce maritime security in the Caribbean world. 
But the Caribbean world is in flux. They have these revolutions going on. The Spanish government doesn't really have the money or the power or the wherewithal to enforce any kind of laws themselves. The British, working out of Jamaica, have their own interests and their own trade that they're trying to protect. You have smugglers working throughout the Caribbean, then as almost throughout time. And this is the environment that the American naval officers have to work in and have to try and provide security in for American vessels. It's enormously challenging. Largely, American and British interests align in this era. And I think one of the fascinating things we see from from the chapter in the book is how much they work together. Just five, six years earlier, they had been trying to kill each other in the War of 1812. But by the early 1820s, they are conducting operations together. They're burning and raiding pirate camps in joint operations, the Royal Navy, Royal Marines, alongside U.S. Navy and U.S. Marines. Uh, They're passing intelligence and information to each other. They're physically helping each other. At one point, the uh, American base at Key West has a British frigate show up with a rampant outbreak of yellow fever on board. And the American surgeons nurse the British back to health, provide them supplies until the crew is healthy enough to sail back to Jamaica. And so we see these efforts to work together and support each other in a way that is kind of surprising considering how literally these same men had been shooting at each other just a few years earlier. And so it's a fascinating era. There's a lot of a lot of stuff to study, a lot of the politics, the economics, as well as the naval operational history to look at when trying to understand the experience in this era. Well, the title of your concluding chapter, The the Regularity of the Irregular, it denotes how 19th century naval operations, you know, rather like the ground-based military efforts in the same era in the West, were predominantly small unit slash small craft affairs, with the exception, of course, of the American Civil War, which you know, is, is not the subject of this book, nor should it be of the interview. I want to ask, though, how is it? And I think you've already answered some of this earlier in the interview, but I want to return to it for contemporary historians as well. How is it that this period, this type of warfare, has been ignored for so long? There's a couple influences here on why naval historians have studied the things that they've studied. The first thing that I want to point out is there's a lot of naval history that needs to be written. I heard at one point a department head of a significant research university here in the United States told a naval officer that naval history is largely settled. We know what was important and what happened, and there's not that much left to study. And that's just insane to me. And I think the chapters of this book illustrate it, that there's so much more for us to go digging into to learn about our American naval past. And that's true strategically and operationally. That's true organizationally. That's true culturally, socially, technological history. There's so much history that's left to be written about the United States maritime past. So I just want to say that at the the very start, you know, historians have selected topics and things to research and things to study. In large measure, what I'm suggesting is that we need more naval historians. We need more people digging into other aspects of our naval past. 
And, you know, every every other year we have the McMullen Naval History Symposium at the Naval Academy, the, the largest naval history academic conference in the world. And, and we get to see a lot of that, frankly. So, so there is a lot of amazing work going on. But in a way, you know, historians want to be read. Historians want to research things and work on topics that people are going to be interested in and arguably that can have an influence. And understanding big navies and how they're organized and how they build their ships and how they fight, well, the United States has a big navy, right? The British had a, had a big navy for a long time. And so naval historians, I think in some ways, just gravitated towards the battle fleet, towards big questions of naval history uh, in order to study the topics that they saw as important and frankly, that the Navy told them was important. You know, this is wrapped up in the Navy's self-image. The navies, the United States Navy in particular, but I think navies generally. They, they aspire to that big battle fleet. They, ex, they aspire to the decisive uh, engagement at sea that wins a war. And they, navies largely see themselves in that light. These other kinds of operations are sometimes necessary, but I've even heard them uh, amongst naval officers called the lesser and included parts of naval operations, meaning hey, you know, if we build the big battle fleet, we can just do this stuff on our own. We'll just make it up and it'll be okay. It's, it's lesser, it's included, we can make it happen. And that's largely how the Navy has treated irregular operations across the 20th century, right? We see the gunboats of the Yangtze River in the 1920s. We see the maritime support to the Army and Marines in the Philippine insurrection at the dawn of the 20th century. We can talk about the imperial elements of that of that war. We can talk about the the racial elements of that war in the Philippines. But from an operational standpoint, there's a lot of operational history there that has been unstudied. We look at the riverine operations of the Vietnam War, the Sea Lords operations. And again and again, we see these kinds of irregular operations need to happen and the Navy has to cobble a solution together out of what it can find laying around, sort of. Um, rather than come up with a coherent and doctrinally uh, sensible approach to these topics and keep it as a part of your Navy. And I think naval historians have unwittingly probably been wrapped up in that. Look, there's, like I said, there's plenty of good battles to write about. There's plenty of important stuff to study. And so if they've gravitated towards the larger battles and, and the bigger engagements, that's perfectly reasonable and a, and a good idea. My suggestion is that we need something more. We need to broaden our aperture a little bit and think about the kinds of operations uh, that aren't aligned with the Navy's self-image. Well, you know, at the same time, you know, the conclusion, I would argue, sets up this argument that it's precisely this type of naval engagement that's more likely to return to the fore as we move into the 21st century. How so? And one of the things I mentioned really briefly in the, in the conclusion is, is the recent work of Jeffrey Till. Dr. Till wrote kind of a textbook, a, a manual called Sea Power. And it's a, it's a fantastic book. And he creates this kind of bifurcation in contemporary naval forces between what he calls modern navies and postmodern navies. 
And his label for modern navies are kind of our classical naval ideas that, that we've been talking about, right? Uh, fleets built around the concept of fleet battle and power projection at a large level. We're talking about you know aircraft carriers, large fleets, fleet level engagements, and na- modern navies are built around those ideas. Until suggests that what he calls postmodern navies, the kinds of navies he began identifying in the late 1990s and into the 21st century, would be navies focused on smaller things sometimes. They would be more expeditionary navies. They'd be more focused on the literals of the world. They would be more interactive with the shore. And the you know when we say literal, we don't just mean the water part of it. We mean the land part of the literals as well. And he, he said that they would, you know, they would be involved in operations like counter-piracy, like what the British have traditionally called constabulary missions, enforcing maritime security on the world's oceans. They'd be interested in humanitarian assistance and more diplomatic uses of naval force. And this is these are the kinds of things that what Till calls a postmodern navy would do. And I think those things all describe the early US Navy. I think that the Postmodern navy is a pre-modern navy as well. And if, if it's both postmodern and it's pre-modern, maybe it just means it's part of naval power. Maybe it just means that it's actually a part of this, not just a lesser included that you cobble together, but something that navies are responsible for. And I do think thinking about this offers us in our current moment, it offers us good questions to ask. You know, I've always said that about studying our naval past. Our history doesn't tell us what to do. It's not a checklist. It's not a procedure. We as naval officers tend to be educated as engineers and scientists, and we look for equations that will spit out the right answer. That's not what history is going to give you. What history is going to give you is the knowledge and wisdom to ask better questions about your contemporary environment. It's not going to tell you what the answers are going to be because history doesn't repeat itself. And it, despite what we all say Mark Twain might have said, sometimes it barely rhymes. But it does give you things to think about. And it, it helps you ask better questions of the contemporary moment to come up with more appropriate answers, perhaps. And I think that that's part of what looking back at the age of sail does for us. You know, if we look at the experience of irregular operations and maritime rating in the age of sail, We see that they're wrapped up in great power competition. We see that they connect the diplomatic, the economic, and the military exercise of power. We see that they suggest that fleet design should consider small vessels as well as the biggest and most powerful battle fleet vessels. And these are all things that should raise questions for us in the 21st century and questions for us in a world where the American national defense strategy tells us that we're entering a new era of great power competition. That should immediately make us ask, well, what were previous eras of great power competition like and what did they require of a Navy? And so I I think that it it is a useful thing for us to think about today. Well, you know, you, you've done this before. Uh, you know, at this point in our interviews, as, as we come to the close, we offer a pair of final questions to guests that look forward from the book we've just talked about. The first of them, what are you looking forward to as your next project? And then as a follow-up, perhaps, can you share with us anything you're reading or viewing now? particularly in the age of a COVID lockdown that our listeners may wish to check out for themselves. So I'm, uh, I actually have a, a 
pair of publications coming out uh, this fall that we've we've put to bed, I think. One of them is a, is a chapter in a book coming out from Marine Corps University Press on the history of amphibious operations. Uh, and my chapter examines the American engagement operation landing in Korea in 1871. As I was just saying, it wraps up diplomacy, economics, great power competition, and frankly, failure of military means to achieve the objectives desired in the United States' first real interaction with Korea. Uh, And so that's a chapter in the book that'll be coming out, I think, at the end of next month, maybe beginning of September. And then I also have an article coming out in uh, the Naval War College Review later in the autumn where I examine the quasi-war with France. Uh, And I look at it more closely in trying to determine what it suggests for us when thinking about this idea of renewed great power competition today. Great power competition has tended to, in our current national security kind of writing and literature, has tended to be shorthand for open warfare with China. Um, People say, oh, we're entering a new era of great power competition. And then they immediately jump to what would a war with China look like? And I think that's a giant assumption that you go from competition to open nation state war. There's something in between. There's a lot of in between. And the quasi war with France is actually an example of an undeclared war. It had combat operations, but it had a lot of diplomacy involved too. And it was really messy when it came to the interaction of the great powers. And the United States was wrapped up in this. And so I think it's a really interesting example to look at when thinking about our contemporary world. And that's the article that'll, that'll be out in the Naval War College Review later in the autumn. Um, in terms of what I'm working on right now, I actually, I've shifted gears a little bit. I've embraced my inner professor, and I'm working on a manuscript on a book uh, tentatively titled Developing the Naval Mind. And in that book, we're examining how naval officers are professionally developed in the fleet, not through training, but through self-education and through studying together as groups. What's the history of that? What's the contemporary kind of present of that? And pedagogically, how do you do it? And that's kind of the project that I'm working on right now. It's a, it's a fascinating project. I had the great opportunity this summer uh, here at the Naval Academy. During the summers, our midshipmen largely head out to the fleet. They go to be trained on naval vessels or at facilities around the world. And of course, in, in our COVID environment, that simply did not happen this year, right? That much travel that much engagement was was not going to happen. And so we taught summer school. We taught almost all of our midshipmen took summer school in an online setting, mostly from their homes. And I had the great privilege to teach an online class on the history of naval thought. And really, it was the history of American naval thought in the 20th century, which is too long of a title for the catalog. And it was really a great class. I had a great time with the midshipmen. I think the midshipmen had a good time too, diving into some of the significant figures of our naval past, like like Mahan and Sims, but also folks like Pete Ellis, the Marine Corps strategist, um, the Soviet Admiral Sergei Gorshkov, J.C. Wiley, the American Admiral who wrote uh, strategy articles in the 1950s, all, all kinds of different people. And I came away from that experience just really thinking about how we as naval professionals self-educate, how we continue to develop ourselves professionally through our reading and our discussions and, and our learning in an informal way. 
And that's really kind of influencing the project I'm working on now. Now, what was the what was the second question? Well, the second part was if there was anything you're reading or watching now in the midst of our our current situation that our listeners may want to check out for themselves. It's kind of a frivolous question, but I like to ask it. No, it's a, it's a great question. I actually uh, have a, a pair of books here. And, and again, I'm being parochial, right? So this autumn, this October is the 175th anniversary of the opening of the United States Naval Academy. Um, or actually the opening of what was called the Naval School at Annapolis, which, which was renamed the Naval Academy a few years later. And in, so in preparation for the 175th, I have Bill Lehman's The Long Road to Annapolis, and the other book is uh, A Society of Gentlemen by Hunter that are about the, this early era of the United States Naval Academy and, and the history of the institution that I teach at. I've been reading those two books. I, I finished Long Road to Annapolis about a week ago, and, and I'm in the middle of Society of Gentlemen right now. And it's really interesting. It's fun to read it in this moment. We, we as teachers, we as college professors, largely in higher education, are in a moment of struggle, right? We're trying to figure out how to teach our students. We're trying to figure out you know, the physical and scientific and medical parts of doing that safely. But we're also trying to figure that out pedagogically, right? How do we effectively get our students to learn? And that's true of us here with our midshipmen at the academy, too. And returning to the roots of the institution is interesting because it helps remind me that those are questions we should always be asking and have always been asked. How do you effectively do this? How do you get midshipmen to learn? What are the right things to teach them? And so it's, it's good to read this history to, to help me ask my questions about the present, I think. Well, that's great. BJ, thanks, as always, for taking the time to talk with me today. Bob, it was a great pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, and I look forward to another conversation in the future at some point. Absolutely. And for all of our listeners, on behalf of New Books in Military History, this is your host, Bob Wintermute. Thank you for listening.